Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Ros Taylor. I'm the kind of person who's always catastrophizing. My expectation is that the worst will happen and that there's no reason why I should be spared it. But most of us aren't like that. We prefer to assume that there isn't going to be another big pandemic in our lifetimes, or that the sea won't rise high enough to affect our homes. Jeff Slagermalch is director of the National Centre for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University, so he spends an awful lot of time thinking about this. Welcome to the bunker, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Cutting to the chase... What disasters are you most worried about in the next decade? Yeah, it's a great question, and and it's one that I get all the time. And of course, the disasters we think about are these very photogenic, very um, you know televised storms, flooding events, things that that really sort of rock us. But the ones that I and a lot of my colleagues worry about the most are actually these slower creeping disasters, drought, a buildup of extreme heat and extreme humidity, these types of things that sort of creep up slowly and start to affect uh, crop cycles and food security and have cascading impacts over where we can live and even the stability of governments that can cascade into broader infrastructure failures, civil society failures, and things like that, that are sort of creeping up on us while we're paying a lot of attention to, just as importantly, these very large very acute disasters like the storms, the floods, the earthquakes, and things like that. We've got used to hearing about wildfires and obviously storm damage and things like that in the US, but you're more worried really about the potential for drought. Where is that most acute in the US? Well, I think we have it throughout the world. Um, And in the US, of course, we obviously have it in the middle parts of the country where a lot of the food supply is grown. But then we look at areas across the world like the Sahel and Africa and the Middle East where we have heat and humidity, uh, where we can see potentially within our lifetime and certainly over the next hundred years, parts of the world that are virtually unlivable without significant infrastructure. And similarly with crop failures, we've already seen issues of famine um, unrelated to climate change. And now uh, we see some evidence that suggests it could be a contributing factor to state instability and conflict and things like that. And as these conditions grow more and more acute, then we can see them be even more destabilizing. But even aside from that, when you have entire communities who are built around agriculture or farming or any type of industry that is that is disrupted that erodes over time you also see impacts to the to the health of the community the physical health the mental health um, as it all relates to the economic health so the, these changes are I, I like to think of there there's um, I don't know if you've heard the expression of boiling a frog and that if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water it'll jump right out 
But if you put it in at room temperature and slowly turn up the temperature, eventually you'll cook the frog and it'll never even know what's happening. And that's sort of what we're seeing with these slower moving disasters is, is we're, we're the frog in this scenario. So we know about the climate emergency, whether we want to hear it or not. In your book, you write quite a bit about disasters that were seemed to come out of the blue, but actually there were warnings that they would happen. What sort of things did you have in mind? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. In, in the disaster space, there, there are these patterns that you see all the time. And so we don't know exactly when the next wildfire is going to occur, but we know we're going to see more of them. And we know the areas where we're more likely to see them. Similarly, with, with catastrophic storms and coastal storms and tropical cyclones, we don't know how many there are going to be next year. We don't know exactly where they're going to hit, but we know that we're going to see them hit with more intensity. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example, as a lot of folks you know, will say, we couldn't have seen this coming. And in fact, if we look at just the last hundred years, um, and even with hundreds of years beyond that, the arc of human history is punctuated with pandemics. Um, and just based on, on rough timing between these pandemics, we were due to get hit. And you also said that 9-11 could perhaps have been predicted. Well, so 9-11, looking retrospectively at the, at the intelligence, was predicted. It was just missed. Um, so there were reports of pilots of suspicious backgrounds who were in training schools, but it was lost sort of in the shuffle of intelligence. There were a lot of concerns about increases in, in anti-U.S. terrorist activity and things like that. So the warning signs were there just as they were there in terms of some of the impacts we would have from COVID, and it just sort of gets lost. So again, another example of when folks say we, we never could have seen this coming, um, that statement's only true if you don't look at the data. And why do these warnings not get picked up? What, what are the uh, systemic reasons why people ignore them or overlook them? Yeah, there's, there's a few different reasons for this. And one, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, is that there's a lot of noise and it looks a lot like signal. I spent some time as an epidemiologist and, you know, you see outbreaks every day um, that are happening around the world that are getting reported. And when I first started looking at these, I thought, oh, my God, we're, we're all going to die <laughs> by next Tuesday. And then I realized those reports come in every week. And so how do you start to differentiate between things to keep an eye on and things not to keep an eye on? So the task at hand is a lot harder than folks like myself will make it out to be in, in quick talking points. But that being said, too, we're also really acutely attuned to the immediacy. So the, the pandemic risk has always been there, but then we're dealing with job losses before the next election cycle, with a sputtering economy, with inflation, sort of keeping the lights on of addressing the issues in front of us, uh, and having a little bit more trouble sort of managing the uncertainty and the threats that we can sort of see taking shape down the road, but aren't yet right before us. Are we also hardwired to be optimistic? Because I think there's a strange feeling which I recognise in myself and which is completely irrational that says, well, I've lived through a pandemic. Surely I won't have to live through another one. Surely it will be a long, it will be beyond my lifetime before something like this happens again. And that makes no sense whatsoever. It's completely irrational. But is it something you see happen quite often? Absolutely, there is an optimism bias. Um, and we'll look at things and we'll say, well, we're, you know, it's not going to affect me as bad. Or I have this is why it's different for me and things like that. So we do have sort of these cognitive sort of go-tos um, that will sort of keep us from being truly objective in certain situations. At the same time, it's there's also a lot of uncertainty around us, and we have different ways of coping with that. We don't actually 
train ourselves very well to deal with uncertainty. And if you think about it, you know, from the way we're taught science at a very young age, right, it's A, B, C, or D, or it's true or false, but there is a right and a wrong answer. And in reality, when we're talking about using science, when we're talking about understanding disasters and the interaction of complex systems, certainty doesn't exist. (laughs) We're always dealing with things like rough probabilities and things. And so, uh, and so we default into gut feelings, into optimism. When there is a disaster, we tend to rely quite heavily on charities and there will be a big charity appeal. And we trust those charities to get the money to the right place and make a difference. Does that always happen? Uh, I wish I could say yes. And and the last thing I want to do is take attention away from charities who are doing really good work. But I think the short answer is that like with any, any of the sectors we look at in the book, um, it's a mixed bag. So on the one hand, you know, most charities are striving to do good work and do good work. But at the end of the day, are they doing the best work that they could do? And I think the answer there is largely no. And the reason for that is that, you know, we think charities will, okay, they're going to fill in the gap where nobody else will, because they're not bound by politics. They're not bound by shareholders. They're not bound by all of these other, other sort of flawed incentive structures. But at the end of the day, if you're running a charity, you're still bound by your donors and your donors' preferences. And donors respond based on emotion. It's a very emotional thing. You see this tragic flood on TV and you say, I need to, I need to help. And then there's an immediacy. I give this money. How come I'm not seeing an immediate impact? Now, when we look at disaster recovery, it goes on for decades or more. When we look at preparedness, it's very abstract. But donors and donations and the nature of gathering donations is equally sort of emotionally driven and uh, has these sort of shorter term parameters. Are you worried about disaster fatigue? I mean, it's a horrible term, but donation fatigue, the feeling that there's just always something terrible going on. Yeah, I, I, I don't worry about it because we're kind of there uh, and, and it's continuing to get there. I mean, the, the short answer is that, um, you know, we're, we're really approaching that breaking point. Uh, we can only ask so much of people and we're even seeing this in, in some of the backlash where we've had celebrities. I'm thinking, you know, the, the Maui wildfires in Hawaii and you had celebrities like Oprah Winfrey and Dwayne Johnson sort of contributing money and then asking people for donations. And there was a backlash saying, look, we're all struggling here. You know, you have all this money. Why don't you just cover the rest of it? Um, and the window for attention is very, very short and getting shorter. And uh, the window for receiving donations is very, very short. So I think we're, we're definitely, we're seeing this, we're, we're maybe seeing some foundations and some other groups standing up, trying to be more strategic and thinking about this, trying to put more robust uh, funding into it. But I, I think that the, the industry is at a transition point and, and hopefully what will emerge is a, is a more robust business model for 21st century disasters and the pace of disasters that we're seeing. But uh, I think we're very early on in that transition state. It's obviously not just charities. People rightly expect the state to step up when there's a disaster. Do you worry too that states just can't handle the demands of modern crises and that maybe on some level, some of them don't even want to? I was thinking about this in relation to preppers in the US, people who've clearly lost trust in the ability of the state to help them should there be a disaster and of just making their own preparations. 
The reality is, is that when we talk about resilience, what we mean is about moving slower and spending more money from the state to build new roads, to increase education, are all sorts of things that are very politically polarizing. Uh, but in order to reduce the amount that we need after a disaster occurs, we need to spend more and regulate more um, to help prevent those disasters from occurring in the first place and certainly to reduce the damage uh, when it does occur. So there's an unhealthy relationship here where states are failing, uh, nation states across the world, including within the U.S., are, are failing to meet their obligation to their citizenry, uh, the most sacred element of the social contract of being there for mutual protection. Um, and it's being masked over by, by transferring that pressure onto charities and pushing for donations and things like that. And so I think that's one of the most important things to unwind. And in developing environments, we see this even more, where you have charities that are essentially providing what are government services and essentially subsidizing failed states. Uh, now, on the flip side, people will die if you don't do it, right? So, so how do you sort of make that balancing act? I don't have a clear answer for that other than, you know, we need to step back and really take a hard look at this. You've got really hard cases like Turkey, for example, haven't you, with the terrible earthquakes they had recently, where a lot of the buildings fell down because they were so badly built. And that was partly because of corruption. And whereas in Japan, when you have earthquakes, that doesn't happen. Frustrations must be enormous. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Turkey. So I was in Turkey uh, just a couple of weeks ago in some of the earthquake-affected regions eight months after. Um, I've seen a lot of disaster sites, and I haven't seen them all, and there are certainly ones that are far worse um, that I have not seen. But of the sites that I've visited and of the ones that I've been to, this was the worst. Eight months after, it might, have been, it might as well have been two weeks after. The pace of recovery was so slow. Just the, the level of abandonment of the areas affected, which is a confluence of a lot of different things, including politics uh, and the scale of the disaster and things like that, uh, was really heartbreaking to see. Um, and especially, you know, uh, I guess to put it very succinctly is that a lot of people were provided with tents and now those tents were being replaced with containers. So you take a large, vibrant city, you take a municipality sort of at the intersection of a lot of different worlds, and then there's a catastrophic earthquake. And then eight months later, sort of the most audacious goal was to get everybody out of tents and into these containers, which were about the size of a small shipping container, densely populated areas. You could hear people on the phone two containers away. Kids don't have a place to study. There are no places to socialize. Eight months after. Uh, and so we think about this. How does this sort of play out over the next decade? How does this play out in the emotional development, the economic development? You have a generation of children who are trapped inside of this. What does this do to them? What does this deny us in the future in terms of these solutions? Um, so to your point exactly, you know, we, we talk a lot about you know, how disasters shouldn't be political. Disasters are absolutely political. And our ability to respond to them is driven as much by politics as it is by the infrastructure and the, ins and the systems dedicated to disaster response that we invest in. Is there a disaster that a country has actually handled pretty well because it was prepared for it? Yeah, and, and you know, I'll actually give a, an example in uh, the book, uh, Catastrophic Incentives. We give an example, I think it was a magnitude, roughly a magnitude 7.0 earthquake. And there are three examples um, that we give. One is uh, there was an earthquake in Japan. I can't remember the year. Not very memorable because nothing really happened. 
Uh, it was about a 7.0. The building shook. Tsunami warnings went off, but there was no tsunami. Things went back to normal. Minor damage, pretty much back to normal. Um, a fairly, uh, you know, any any sort of immediate response was well within the capacity of the systems. Things back to normal. We look at the Loma Prieta earthquake in the San Francisco Bay Area in, um, I believe it was 89, um, and it was uh, fairly substantial. So there were newer areas that were built up. I was actually living in the area at the time, and uh, a lot of the new, newly built areas that were built up to the new code were fine, sure, including, folks may remember, the Embarcadero Freeway structure that collapsed. So it ended up being very expensive, very deadly, and very specific areas. Then we look at the same earthquake and we look at it in Haiti and we look at one of the worst disasters in modern history uh, in terms of lives lost, in terms of economic damage, in terms of and everything that sort of followed with it. Same hazard, but very, very different outcome based on the built environment, based on the political environment, uh, based on a variety of different things. So I think it goes to show that, you know, investment in response systems and investment in preparedness absolutely pay off. But you also have to have the means to, to do so. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's been uh, brilliant to talk to you. Absolutely. Appreciate the, the conversation. Jeff Slagermelch and Ellen Carlin are the authors of Catastrophic Incentives, Why Our Approaches to Disasters Keep Falling Short, which is published by Columbia University Press. And if you enjoyed, if that's worth today's podcast, you can support us to keep making bunkers for as little as three quid a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. That way you'll be prepared for the worst. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Ros Taylor and produced by Eliza Davis Beard. Audio production is from me, Robin Leeburn, and our music's by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.